From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, I'm Kyone Wolf, and this is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. Grief is everywhere, and Megan Devine, author of It's Okay That You're Not Okay, has some ideas about how we can all be better grievers. Remember that acknowledgement is the best medicine we have for a lot of the grief of the world. They don't need to be fixed. They don't need to be cheered up. They don't need to be corrected. They need to be heard. You'll also hear from a 22-year-old Simsbury woman whose dream career path at Disney World got cut short when COVID-19 hit the U.S. And you may have noticed more of your friends have been adopting new pets lately. Montana Kateni from Pack Leaders Rescue talks us through best practices to socialize and train your new family member during a pandemic. Plus, a report from Madrid, Spain, from my eight-year-old niece, Arwen. I miss my friends, seeing the birds fly on top of me. I miss the car even. Stay tuned for us in the time of coronavirus. That's after the news. This is Us in the Time of Coronavirus from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Kyone Wolf. This hour you'll hear about a more useful way to look at grief, the shutdown of the happiest place on earth, how to train your new dog in a pandemic, and a report from Madrid, Spain from my eight-year-old niece, Arwen. Let's start with grief. The first thing I think of when I think of the word grief are the feelings of a person whose loved one has died. I think of platitudes. This will make you so much stronger, and at least they're no longer suffering, and other things that well-meaning people tend to say that not only doesn't really help, but can really hurt the person who's grieving. I'd seen this video online a while ago called How Do You Help a Grieving Friend? It was stunningly animated by Asta Shrestha and written and voiced by the psychotherapist, grief advocate, and author of It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Megan Devine. Whether you were grieving a loss before this pandemic, or you know someone who's died due to it, or you've had to close your business, cancel your wedding, miss graduation, if you have had your heart broken, you're grieving. These experiences don't compare to each other, but we try to compare, right? And that's part of what Megan talks about. There are these nuances, hierarchies, circles, cycles of grieving that are relevant to all of us right now in some way, shape, or form. I asked Megan to explain what she knows about grief and what got her deep into this field of work. So I've been a psychotherapist for a number of years now. I think we're closing in on two decades here. And I had been in private practice for six or seven years working with grief in all forms, death-related, not death-related, abuse and trauma histories. So I really felt that I knew what I was doing. And then my partner died in an accident. He drowned in our home river on a perfectly ordinary summer day. You know, when Matt died, I quit my practice and I never wanted to go into the helping professions in that way again. But what I realized a few years later is that I had something to say in this space from both my clinical perspective and also as a grieving person's perspective. And if I could bring a different conversation about grief to the table, we could change things not only for grieving people who need all the support we can give them, but also for friends and family members and professionals who desperately want to be of help and they don't know how. So knowing that I could speak to that and make some change happen in the world, like how could I not do that? I found you after seeing this video called How Do You Help a Grieving Friend? It's this four-minute, beautifully animated video that helps kind of correct some ideas about what you should and should not say to loved ones when their someone has died. Why do you think this little video 
was so loved and made such huge rounds. I'm avoiding saying going viral at this point. It just doesn't right? feel right. It's so, it's so hard to not say going viral. Yeah, that little animation is such a gift. It's such an amazing thing. And it's the last I checked, it had over 30 million views. What that says to me is that we all want to know how to be supportive, right? Like there is a real need out there for people to not feel so helpless in the face of other people's pain or their own pain, right? But talking about death and talking about grief is a really scary prospect. So if we put those two things together, the deep relational need to know how to do this better and the deep fear of even talking about it, well, how do we get people to talk about things that scare them? We make it adorable and we make it (laughs) actionable. And that animation is used in trainings all around the world. The uh, LA Fire Department used it a year or two ago during one of the really bad fire seasons to help communities talk about how to support each other and how to talk about what they were experiencing. And that, as an educator, is the best possible outcome for a difficult topic out in the world. And, and again, what that says to me is that people very much want to know this stuff. They might not articulate that need, but I think most people have had that experience of looking at somebody they care about who is in pain wanting so desperately to make it better for them and feeling helpless as to how to do that. And when we feel helpless, that's when we spout out platitudes. That's when we say they're in a better place or at least the sun is shining. And we do that because one, we don't have the skills. And two, we have that very human impulse to make things better for the people we care about. I wanted to talk to you about um, this article you wrote in 2017 called The Hierarchy of Grief. And it talks about how when somebody dies, uh, there's sort of an almost automatic positioning and understanding of where you are in this hierarchy of like, how allowed are you, (laughs) for lack of a better term, to be sad, to be anguished or upset and in ways that's natural and normal. But you're also arguing that it's not always, that it's not quite that simple. So I was hoping you could talk about that article and how it applies to now. Absolutely. I think to talk about hierarchies of grief, we should back up for a second and and talk about the epidemic of unspoken grief that we had before the pandemic and then the big waves of grief in all its forms that are coming to the surface now inside the pandemic, right? Grief isn't just related to the death of someone. There is grief all the time. And as a culture, we aren't very good at talking about it. Back in the good old days, you'd be standing in the line at the coffee shop and making casual conversation with somebody and you ask them how their day is going. And they're like, not that great. You know, the dog was up sick all night and the kids were late for school and now I've missed two meetings. And you say, well, at least the sun is shining or, well, I'm glad you're getting your coffee then, right? Like we hear pain all the time and our impulse is always to fix it, which just means that everybody's carrying around a whole bunch of pain that they never, that they're never allowed to say. And we're seeing that so much more in the face of this pandemic, people who are sad that they can't go to graduation, people who are sad that a long awaited vacation is not going to happen. Those people get to be sad. But I think what we're, we're sort of conditioned to do is at least you're not sick. At least you have the money to go on a vacation. Right. We do a lot of that at leasting. Uh, I can't remember what term Brene Brown uses for that, but that at leasting, right? That silver lining on top of things. We we do that so impulsively and instinctively. 
And so this, this idea of the hierarchy of grief, I think we can take that two ways. One is all grief is valid, but not all grief is the same. I think what happens is when we try to validate all grief, we flatten the field and we say that all grief is exactly the same. If I post something about pet loss, I start getting people saying, how dare you talk about pet loss? I come here because my baby died or I come here because my sister was killed by a drunk driver. It is not the same thing as watching your dog die. And so people get really angry and they get really possessive of who gets to be grieving. And I understand that. The amount of true support that is available for grieving people, grieving any kind of loss, it's scarce. And if compassion is a scarce resource, what do we do with scarce resources? We defend them. We get territorial about them. We hoard them. What I always say when I hear these sort of border skirmishes around whose grief is more valid than another is, if we want a world where there is enough compassion and understanding for our losses, we need to behave as though compassion is an abundant resource and share it freely. That's the only way we're going to get out of the grief comparison wars, where my grief is worse than your grief. The only way that we're going to heal that and get over that is extending compassion to anyone who says, ow. At the same time, just because all grief is valid does not mean all grief is the same. That article that I wrote around the hierarchy of grief was, was addressing uh, a dear friend of mine who died of cancer a few years ago. And me sort of figuring out my place in that universe of pain that surrounded her death. And I was in pain. I miss my friend. I miss my friend to this day. And maybe I have a privileged position doing this grief work in the world, but I understand that my grief, while valid, is not the same as the grief of her husband or her son or her friends who were there day to day. And that sort of distinction that I make is, my day-to-day -day life was not impacted by her death. My everyday wake up in the morning, go through the normal routines of my day was not impacted in any way. That didn't make my grief less valid, but it did help me to sort of orient myself in that universe of pain around that stuff. I think that distinction is really important. My pain, my grief is and was valid but I wouldn't go looking for grief support and understanding from people who were closer to the center of that loss. I needed to go to my friends and my people who never knew Beth in order to feel supported in my own grief. I wouldn't call up her husband and cry on his shoulder about missing her, right? And he could call on you. He could call on me, right? The further you are out in those concentric circles, in those ripples, the more you're called upon to be of support to those closer to the middle, to the best of your ability and your capacity. I think, again, where we get into those border skirmishes is where we confuse valid with the same. I can, you know, look to somebody who is grieving because they don't get to go on their, their anticipated family vacation, and I can hear that as pain. It doesn't have to take away from the validity of my own grief about something going on in my life if I treat compassion as an abundant resource. I was uh, having this conversation with the death doula, Elua Arthur, 
at yeah, Going With great. Grace. Oh, I love her. And yeah, she was too. saying how if you've seen one death, you've seen one death. Yeah. They are impossible to compare. It's tempting and it, it makes sense that as human beings, we, we try to compare. We try to gauge stuff. We're, we're overall, we're pretty good at it. So it makes sense that we try. But when it comes to grief in all of its forms, over things that won't happen that we hoped would, over people who have died, over all the ways that grief can manifest, it makes sense we try to compare. But after talking with her, I, I understand that they're all incomparable. They are. I mean, even even when people lose the same person in a family system. So if you've got a bunch of siblings and your dad dies, one person died, but several people died. Grief is as individual as love. Each one of us has a different relationship with that one person. So you lost one version of your dad. Your sibling lost another version. They lost their dad. So even when one person dies, none of those griefs are the same because all of the love is different. All of the relationships are different. Comparison is a normal human impulse. You're right. It is one of the ways that we try to make sense of things. And especially with something as emotionally and relationally challenging as loss and grief. Of course, we lean on that stuff. We're trying to make order out of chaos. There's no order to be made. And that's, that's the piece that the, the role or the, the job of offering support is about acknowledging the chaos, acknowledging whatever is going on for that person without trying to shift it or change it in any way. And that includes comparison as a form of trying to relate to it. The impulse isn't wrong. The action that we take based on that impulse is incorrect and it's misinformed. I see failures of compassion and failures of support all the time because of the work that I do. So I see it all the time for grieving people. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Again, we go back to like, how do we respond to the person in line at the coffee shop who says, I had a really bad day this morning. This morning was really awful. We respond by trying to cheer them up. That's your daily practice point. That's the time for on a very low stakes interpersonal communication for you to say, I'm sorry to hear that. Do you want to tell me about it? Or I'm sorry to hear that. That sounds really difficult. Acknowledgement. If we do it on the smaller everyday pain that we hear, it becomes that much easier to practice that new way of responding with the bigger life altering losses. And we are seeing a lot of them. We've got the uh, grief related to deaths that happened because of this virus. We've also got people who I'm talking about it now as pre-existing grieving conditions, right, before this pandemic. And grieving people, by and large, often feel isolated and lonely and that nobody understands them, even with the best of support. And so for those folks right now, what support they had has become even thinner as people sort of hunker down and triage. And now they have kids at home and working from home. So whatever support they might have been able to offer before this, Maybe it's not so available. So there's increased suffering for people who are grieving before the virus hit. Then we've got people who are experiencing deaths of people they care about unrelated to the virus, but impacted by the virus. We can't do funerals right now. We can't do memorials. All of those early community touchstones after somebody dies are now off the table. So what does that mean for newly grieving people that they don't even have that initial support and connection in the way that they might have? Then we have 
people who are putting off their healthcare checkups and their preventative things so as not to put a strain on the system. My guess is we're going to see a wave of illnesses and diseases that weren't caught early enough. So, you know, as a professional, I like this is sort of my job to look at the waves of grief that are incoming and people who missed early preventative care or early detection care, that's going to be impacted by the virus. And then, of course, all of our healthcare professionals. So most of my social circle are illness, palliative care, hospice, funeral workers, all of these things, and um, the grief that they're carrying, having to make the decisions that they have to make, having to be um, sequestered from their own family members to protect them so they don't have that support right now. Grief upon grief upon grief upon grief. And then the everyday losses, right? Like, I can't go to work. Maybe I lost my job. For me, my sweet, beautiful dog can't go to daycare. And when she sees a dog walk by, she starts crying. That's heartbreaking. And it's valid. And it is not life-changing. <laughs> but the amount of grief that is coming into the public eye and coming into public conversation, like we have to talk about how we talk about this from the small things to the big things. What are some takeaways that you really want people to know with all these various forms of grief and the fact that we can practice how mm. we respond to people who are grieving for whatever they're grieving? What are yeah. some really, really important things we can think about to get started when we respond to people? Yeah. So conversations about grief and what we do about it can feel really daunting and overwhelming. So I do my best to make it really simple. So the first thing is to start recognizing pain statements. The good news is, is that pain statements happen all the time. We just don't recognize them as pain. So start listening for things that hurt. And step two, change the way that you respond to it. Notice what you would normally say, which is to cheer somebody up or to change the subject or say other people have it worse and experiment with different things. So you might lead with curiosity. That sounds really crappy. Do you want to tell me about it? A really great question is what would feel useful? Do you want some solutions right now or do you want support around that? It's a really great question to ask for any kind of pain statement from the big things to the little things. What would feel helpful right now? Do you want a problem solve or do you want some support? And step three, remember that acknowledgement is the best medicine we have for a lot of the grief of the world. Again, from the smaller things that we're seeing coming up these days with people losing elements of their everyday lives to life-altering losses, we can't fix those things, but we can acknowledge them. And it doesn't seem like it would be of any help, but it's often the only thing that works. People need to be heard. They don't need to be fixed. They don't need to be cheered up. They don't need to be corrected. They need to be heard. And it is much much more simple than we think it is. That was Megan Devine. You can see her work at refugeingrief.org. We've got that beautiful video I mentioned earlier on our website, ctpublic.org slash us. When we come back, you'll meet a 22-year-old Simsbury resident who is just starting down her dream career path at Disney World. When the happiest place on earth shut down. That's us in the time of coronavirus after the break. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. 
I'm Kyone Wolf. It won't take long for you to hear in Emily Cole's voice that Disney is it for her. She had been working as a character attendant at Disney World in Orlando through their Disney College program, but when COVID-19 hit hard, attendance at Disney World plummeted. Emily lost her job. She's now one of the more than 22 million Americans who are out of work because of this pandemic. I asked Emily about her job at the park and how she's coping now. So um, I was a character attendant. So I worked in the entertainment department um, with all of the Disney characters that you get to meet in the parks. I was the cast member who would help facilitate those meet and greets. So I would help prep the guests so that they had their cameras, their autograph books ready to go, that they knew where to put their bags. I would assist the princesses in their meet and greet if they needed a pen or if they needed you know, me to hold the books while they took pictures. Um, and then I would help guests get their pictures from our professional photo pass photographers or help them take them on their phones and then make sure everything was moving smoothly and efficiently so we could see as many guests as possible. So you were like a liaison, like a wing person. Yeah. So it kind of depends on, um, so that was kind of an example of what we call a face character. So those would be princesses, Mary Poppins, et cetera. Um, when you're working with Mickey Mouse or Donald Daisy, et cetera, that's what we call a sculpted character, um, for lack of a better word. So in those kind of situations, you're a bit more involved in the meet and greet. You're a bit more, you have to, um, since our friend Mickey Mouse does so many shows and parades, he can't necessarily talk during his meet and greets. So it's my job um, to, you know, interpret his animations when he waves his fingers in kind of a sing-songy way. I know he's saying, oh, happy birthday. And then he, you know, counts on his fingers and I say, oh, how old are you, friend? And then that kind of facilitates the conversation. Now, um, do you have like a meeting beforehand with Mickey to establish what gestures mean what? Or is it something that you intuit after a long time of working there? And good instincts. Yeah, basically. Um, so exactly. So we train with the characters. So there's a lot of time to kind of learn the basic mannerisms. But there are so many times that I've had to look at them and go, wait, what? Okay, you're pointing to her, his, her shirt, and then you're pointing to you. Oh, you want one of their matching shirts. Oh, so it's really a matter of practice. And even still, there will be times where it'll, he'll you know, animate something at the beginning of the interaction, and it'll be at the end of the interaction that I say, oh, I get it. Okay. That's it. And then Mickey kind of looks at me like if Jim was looking into the camera at the office, like, really? <laughs> I wonder, is this something that like is intuitively understood by people who get into this kind of work or is that and or is it something that like you kind of have some time to explicitly think about, like, how do you handle this relationship? The biggest part of my job, you know, at Disney, we talk about um, the four key safety, courtesy, show and efficiency in that order. But a big part of my job is show. So I am the the conduit, the facilitator, the liaison between people and these characters they have grown up with for years and years and years, you know. It's sacred. It's sacred, exactly. And like there's something so magical to working with Cinderella and having a girl who's just come from the Bibbidi Bobbidi boutique dressed as Cinderella in her little plastic heels, being like, that is Cinderella in front of me. I think you have to innately believe in that magic for it to be believable for others. 
I think if you're phoning it in and, you know, and you just don't really care, it can come across that way to guests. The people who do this job, both the performers and the attendants and the leadership, the entertainment aspect of Disney is not something that you can see direct relations to profits or to customer return or et cetera. But it's what sets Disney apart from any other amusement park, in my personal opinion. Every other park has rides. Every other park has snacks. Maybe even other parks have characters, but the shows, the parades, the the level of immersion is what kind of sets Disney apart. And getting to be a part of that is really magical and really fun. And you were just let go? Yeah. So as luck would have it, I happened to be with family as everything was kind of school started getting shut down, advisories started going out, etc. I think the announcement came Wednesday or Thursday morning that Disneyland was closing. And then Thursday night came the announcement that Disney World was closing. And at that time, it was just until March 31st. And then Friday, we got the announcement that the Disney College program, which has about 7,000 participants in Walt Disney World, that the spring 2020 program was being terminated that we were all being marked as completed with favorable rehire statuses, but there is no more work for you and you need to go home now. And nobody knows. Nobody knows how long they're going to be closed. I mean, not nobody, but nobody that isn't in closed door meetings that we are not privy to. But nobody knows if the parks are going to open on June 1st and they're going to give us a call and say, we need all hands on deck because we're going to be busier than we've ever been. Nobody knows. If they're going to say, sorry, guys, apply in a year, we have, you know, a fresh batch coming in. Nobody knows if they're going to call and say, we need you full time right now. Nobody knows if they're never going to call and I got to go find a job at a bank. Like nobody knows anything. And that, I mean, that's a really, that's a tough spot for everybody, but like, that's a tough spot for me to be in. And that I didn't have a whole life plan, but I had a semi-life plan. I'd found myself a real apartment. I'd found myself a job and a community and independence fresh out of college. And now I'm back living at home. And, but I mean, really, I just miss it. Like Orlando and Disney was my friend, my job, my free time, my independence, my future. And now until nobody knows when, It's back living at home, which was not really in the plan. (laughs) No friends, no job, nothing to do, and no answers in the foreseeable future is a tough limbo to live in. Yeah. Because this coronavirus has split some lives in half, like your life, if it didn't happen, and your life if it did. But I'm wondering, in that alternate life, what would be like the dream thing to happen to your job at Disney? Like what's the peak? Oh, okay. I would love to be involved in shows and parades and kind of a, a leadership position. And I mean, either, you know, Disney films, Marvel films, Star Wars films, and kind of <laughs> to get to be the person who coordinates all of the Star Wars cast visiting Galaxy's Edge or the 
frozen cast riding the frozen ride, you know, something that brings the the marketing into the parks, you know, something like that. Yeah. And something that forms those stories and those experiences for people and having like a creative input to that. Exactly. That sounds so, awesome. I mean, people do that now. They're going to need people to do it later. Exactly. So, I mean, but that's first, first they just got to have a job for me, which is not currently happening. So I think it would be cool to work with, you know, the social media influence, something that it is when the media and the parks combine. I think would be very cool. Um, or be a VIP tour guide or work in Disney weddings or there is lots of lots of ways I could see it going. Well, I apologize if this is a sacrilegious question, but who's your favorite character? <laughs> oh, it's not a sacrilegious question. I act so what's funny though is that like because I genuinely work with them, it's like picking your favorite coworker. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite is Doug, the golden retriever from Up. So goes, you know, <laughs> I have just met you and I love you. He is probably my favorite. I love Up in general. It's probably my favorite Disney Pixar movie. And I love dogs. Is there anything about his personality that seems in line with yours? He just loves everything. He, he's such a good boy. <laughs> like, he, like he just goes into everything being like, I am prepared to love you. You know, one of my favorite things is like, I don't remember what part of the movie it is. You know, Mr. Fredrickson, the old man, is flying the house again, and he gets like a knock on the porch, and he's like, "What the heck?" And Doug goes, "I was hiding under your porch because I love you." <laughs> and it's just so, you know, it kind of it gives a voice to what we think our dogs might be thinking, which is generally just, "I love you, and I need you," and also like squirrel. So <laughs> I think he's very pure in his intentions and very loving and very sweet. And now that I think about it, I feel like he also embodies a lot of us lately because I find myself saying I love you a lot more to a lot more people uh, than I ever did before this pandemic hit. But now I'm like, I don't know what's happening. I love you. I've never said it before. <laughs> I love you. I love you. Oh, squirrel. Oh, I'm sure dog is happy. I mean, the dogs are loving this time right now. Are you kidding me? My dogs, like, everyone is home. I'm getting taken on walks three times a day. If everything that happens in Up was happening now, Doug would be having a grand old time being stuck in the house with everybody. <laughs> totally. And you know that people are adopting dogs like crazy right now, too. I mean, really? You're, you got nowhere to be of all the time to train them? Yeah. Get a lot of, you know, bonding right in the beginning. I, I never say no to somebody getting a dog. It's good for all of us, I think. Uh, well, is there anything that I have not asked you about this whole experience you've had that you want to make sure that you mention on this? I miss getting to see kids meet Mickey Mouse for the first time and adults and crying when kids look at Stitch and go like, I just got adopted too. It's moments like that that make the job extraordinary. You know, I don't just miss work. I miss that being my life. <laughs> I miss the fireworks and I miss Mickey pretzels and the parade. Oh, my God, the parade is so good. I miss the parade. <laughs> it's just fun. And it's a really cool opportunity that I'm sad got cut short. But <laughs> there's not much that's forever in this world, but it kind of seems like Disney might be. So someday... And no one knows when that day is. They'll be open again and they'll need somebody. And that somebody might as well be me. 
That was Emily Cole in Simsbury, Connecticut. Now, according to Disney, employees will be able to return to work, quote, when our community recovers from the impact of COVID-19, unquote. Like almost every other business, that date is totally unknown. Now, if the idea of having your own Doug from Up is appealing to you lately, you're not alone. Pet adoptions have shot up since so many of us have been stuck at home, but there are a few things you should keep in mind as you train your new family member and yourself for the long haul. Coming up, we'll hear about pet adoption in the time of coronavirus and observations on quarantine life in Madrid, Spain from a brilliant, insightful, very funny eight-year-old who is, full disclosure, my niece. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Us in the Time of Coronavirus. We'll be right back. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. I'm Kyone Wolf. More and more people are adopting pets since COVID-19 hit our area, and it makes sense, right? I mean, if you're home more often, you can train the pet, bond with it, and especially for those living alone, physical affection is a powerful tool to keep sane in these isolated times. But is now really the best time to get a new pet? How do you socialize an animal when you can't be social? And what about separation anxiety? How do you prepare for the time, eventually, when you're leaving the house on a regular basis? I asked Montana Kateni, co-founder of Pack Leaders Rescue of Connecticut and a professionally certified dog behaviorist, if he was noticing an increase in interest, too. There is. But even though this is a time of crisis and we are all isolated and we want to bring a a special animal uh, into our homes, before we do, please, please, please consider that this will end. And when it ends, that you have a normal routine. So before you're kind of like, hey, I'm bored, don't just be bored, really want the animal and use this as a great time to bring an animal in, work, you know, the, the you know, if it's an older animal, the training, the, uh, the socialization with your family, if it's a younger animal working, you know, with, you know, their, their young um, socialization and uh, habits so that uh, they learn to pee outside and do those type of things. But when it ends, be sure that that animal that you've brought in and now is part of your family is because it's going to be part of your family for the remainder of its um, life. So it's really important and we share that with everyone that wants to adopt from us. Don't just do it because you're bored. Do it because that's something you've wanted to do and maybe this is just the absolute best time to do it. And then be safe when you're doing things with, with your pups and understand some of the normal things won't be available so you won't have puppy training available right now you won't have one-on-one training if you bring it so you're gonna have to have a little more patience and things like that so so understand what you're getting into and then when you're ready it's the best thing ever you get home or you're you wake up and here's this beautiful little face that's gonna come and give you love no matter what has happened in your exterior life they are part of the solution that's a good way to put it One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because my fiance and I were planning on getting a dog about a year from now after we got married and after we fenced in the backyard and went on our honeymoon. But now we have been thinking about it a lot. And one objection that I came up with was there will always be another heartbeat in this house where this dog is. But when life changes and we are leaving the house more often, 
Do you have concerns about dogs having separation anxiety? And if so, how? what's a good way to deal with that? Even during normal times, what I tell all pet parents is, what you want to do is you want to start working either a special room or a crate system while you're home or a way that your pup uses that as a safe haven. When your dog has a safe haven, they don't have anxieties because they go to that safe haven. Most dogs, if they had their choice, would sleep 14 hours a day, eat the remainder and go for the walks with you. They're just like us. They, they love to relax. But when we create an environment where they think that the right thing to do is be by your side the whole time, then that's what they're going to do. Whereas if you separate yourself sometimes, even when you're home, just put the dog in the other room, shut the door, start with one minute, go to five minutes, then go to 10 minutes, then start going outside the house for one minute and five minutes. And guess what your dog learns to do? It says, oh, bye. And when you leave, after a few minutes, boop, the dog goes on his bed, lays down. And when you walk in, it's the greatest thing because whether you left for one minute or half hour, they're like, oh, my God, I miss you so much. Oh, you were so gone. Oh, it was so much great. And it was great. And that's where you can enjoy your pup. And there's nothing wrong with that relationship as long as you teach the dog that when you're not there or even if you are, you don't have to be side by side 24-7. And then your dog learns uh, individuality and independence. And then separation anxiety doesn't exist. Boom. That easy. Yeah. With some time, patience, and practice, guess what? Your dog's going to be just like every other dog. Okay. Socialization. Right now, we are isolating ourselves. And so the dogs uh, or cats that we welcome into our families, they will be around us and maybe our kids if we have them, but they won't be exposed to much else for an indefinite amount of time. So what are you thinking in terms of advice for socializing our dogs? Well, people are still taking walks. And even though you're on separate sides of the road and you're more than six to 10 feet away, that doesn't mean that when you bring your dog in, you want to take the walk. You want to say hi to everyone you can, whether you know them or not. People think you're nuts. That's okay. Say, hey, hi, how you doing? So that the dog clearly understands your, your phonic, your temperament and the way that uh, we're doing things. So, so that when the dog is a peeping Tom and they're all peeping Toms and they're watching, they're going to emulate what we do. So the friendlier we are with people, whether we know them or not, the more your dog is going to emulate that. If someone is walking another dog, this is not the time to do meet and greets, but this is the time for you to specifically look at the dog and say, oh, what a beautiful puppy. And, you know, give it a wave. So your dog is seeing that you are saying hello to the whole family, the dog, whoever's walking, whoever's on the lead. And it's still a very social environment then once this is all over we can start doing some meet and greets but the dog will already have the long distance socialization now it's a matter of learning to get into the bubble of the dog are there certain like consonants or sounds that go into a really good name for a dog or does does the name not really affect how well it well that's a great question but it doesn't affect the dog with a name, if you notice most people, for instance, I have a Sir Lancelot. Sir Lancelot is a uh, uh, Shetland sheepdog or a miniature collie. But no one ever really calls him Sir Lancelot. Everyone calls him Lance because you end up getting your nickname for your dog or your multiple nickname for your dog. If there's four people living in the house, 
you'll have four different nicknames for the dog and the dog understands all of them. You know, if you say Lance or Sir or Lot, he knows it's him and here he comes. It's just they work on phonic and it's a routine foundation that they're working on phonics. So whatever name you want, enjoy the name. You can call it, call the dog, whatever it pleases you. And whatever commands you want to do is great too. I mean, you can be creative. Like when I was growing up, we had a German shepherd named Alex and we trained him to pee every time we said abracadabra. Poof, there's pee, abracadabra, there's feces. What you actually trained the dog to do was mark on command. Not actually pee on command, because just like us, but they're a little different because they have a marking gland and then their typical gland to get rid of minerals and everything else that, that works. But their marking gland is like our communication. Some of us can talk a lot. From what I hear, I'm one of those. Um, so my marking gland would be very, very big. What you taught your dog was with abracadabra to mark. So it would use the resource of that marking gland and mark that certain spot. And so that's uh, your dog's way of, of talking back to you with that command of abracadabra, which was amazing, which is cool. Nice before a long car ride. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, it, yeah, in those, in those terms, you want to not only teach the abracadabra, but you want to teach what's called like free or free zone or free walk. What you do is you teach the dog how to uh, walk, do a working walk. And so on a working walk, the dog doesn't pee, doesn't, uh, you can sniff, but using his head lifted up, it doesn't, you know, pull you left, right. But then as soon as you get to a spot, you basically release the leash in the sense that you don't totally let it go, but you let it uh, have a tons of slack and you say the word release or free. And now the dog understands if you do it over and over, time, patience, practice. Um, if you do it over and over, that that's the time to go pee and to go poop. So now that phonic of free tells them before your car ride free, they're going to start sniffing. And if they have to, they're going to make sure that they relieve themselves. And, and yes, dogs can absolutely be taught to do that, but it just takes a lot of time, practice and patience. Well, uh, abracadabra, the interview is done. Uh <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know if I should go to the corner. Now. <laughs> That was Montana Kateni, co-founder of Pack Leaders Rescue of Connecticut. You can check him out at packleadersrescue.com. And if you're worried about whether your dog can get coronavirus, the CDC says pet owners should, quote, treat pets as you would other human family members. Do not let pets interact with people or animals outside the household. If a person inside the household becomes sick, isolate that person from everyone else, including pets. You know, I love ending these shows with the voices of children, and there's one child in particular that I feel connected to, because she's my niece. Arwen Gladys Perez Sauquillo has lived in Madrid, Spain for all of her eight years, and I really needed to know not only how she's seeing this whole pandemic thing, but what it's like in Madrid. To start, I asked her what exactly is the coronavirus. The coronavirus is a microbe that makes the grandpas and grandmas really sick and sometimes they cannot stand it and they it's really would not like it how long have you been quarantined for three weeks wow 
How are you keeping busy? I paint, read books, and my dad sings me every night. I get dressed. We make towers with cushions. We make forts. We make、um, a lot of things to entertain us. We paint. We read books. We do everything <laughs> like well, a lot of things. What do you miss most about life before all this happened? I did not know that I was going to be so much time here. <sighs> I miss my friends, my teacher, my my school, my park, seeing the dogs in the street, seeing the birds fly on top of me, going to the zoo. Doing so many things like that, going on the car in the car. I do not like it, but I miss the car even. <laughs> I miss it all. But if you could say something to the coronavirus, what would you say to it? Coronavirus, could you go, please? I would make him a trick. Like, look, there is a box. There's a lot of people there. They are better than us. They are yummier. Maybe you should go there. Tell your friends that, and they go all inside there. It's a cage. There's no people there. And then I got them in a cage. They cannot go out. I love that idea. Now I understand that in Madrid, every night at eight o'clock, everybody hollers out their window. What do you say? Thank you, doctor. We scream that like that they hear us because they are giving their lives for that we can be alive. Wow, Arwen, that's awesome. Now I am not alone in feeling kind of stressed out lately, and I could use some jokes. So if you have any jokes for me, please. Right now is a really good time. First one: What did the pirate say on his eightieth birthday? What did the pirate say on his eightieth birthday? I'm eighteen.、Uh, <laughs> How many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? How many tickles? Ten tickles. Ten tickles. When does a sandwich cook? <laughs> When does a sandwich cook? When it's baking lettuce and tomato. Baking lettuce and tomato. Why couldn't the bike stand by itself? Why couldn't the bike stand by itself? It was. Too tired. Oh. <laughs> What time did the man go to the dentist? What time? At two thirty. Two thirty. Two thirty. What does an angry pepper do? What does an angry pepper do? It gets jalapeno face. <laughs> It gets jalapeno face. Good one. What do you call someone with no body and no nose? What? Nobody knows. <laughs> Oh my god! What do you call a fish with no eyes? Wait a minute! This is my favorite joke, and I know the answer. A、uh, fish. What do vegetarian zombies eat? What do vegetarian zombies eat? Grains. <laughs> Grains. What do you call a dinosaur that's sleeping? What? A dino snore. Thank you, Arwen. Okay, before I let you go. I know that every night before you go to bed, you say a little prayer, and I was hoping you could say it for me. 
May I be healthy, happy, strong, safe, brave, thoughtful, thankful, respectful, obedient, kind, compassionate, considerate, generous, helpful, patient, trustworthy, allowing to others and myself. May tomorrow be a better day. That was my niece, Arwen Gladys Perez Alquillo of Madrid, Spain. Thanks, Arwen. And thanks to her brother Aiden and sister Willow for staying mostly quiet during our interview and to her parents, Paul and Vanessa, for raising them so well. stories are you hearing that we should know about? You can contact me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf, and my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Us in the Time of Coronavirus was produced by me and Katie Tolarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. The theme music is called This is the Song by Punch Brothers. You can find more information and subscribe to the podcast at ctpublic.org slash us. Now, here at Connecticut Public, we've decided to cancel our spring fundraiser because, well, there's a there's a pandemic. But if we've been keeping you company and keeping you informed, and if you're financially able, please consider becoming a sustaining member as soon as possible. Please visit ctpublic.org donate. Let them know what you think about our programming. Let them know what you need. And thanks for keeping us healthy. Till next time, stay safe, wash your hands, and may tomorrow be a better day. Bye.